Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alva. And I'm Stephen. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss what's happening in intensive care units, and you ask us, how should we speak about poverty? We're recording the day after we hit a terrible milestone, which was the record number of daily deaths. And Boris Johnson warned yesterday that the NHS faces a very substantial risk of running out of intensive care beds. Alva, you've been writing about that this morning and you've spoken to some people who are on the front line. What is the picture for the health service at the moment? It was a kind of a tricky one to write about this morning because it's not very cheering and also basically there's nothing that can be done about it immediately like we're we're watching this unfold but as we were talking about last week on the podcast given the lag times the the pressure on hospitals at the moment is something that we can try to alleviate in a few weeks time by changing our behavior at the moment with the lockdown but really as it unfolds at the moment we we can really only just just watch But the point that I made in Morning Call, which is a kind of tricky one to make, is that we've been talking a lot about the risk of of the health service being overwhelmed and about how that's a sort of a non-negotiable red line for any government that regardless of any sort of debate that you have about your pandemic response, you can't allow your health service to, to run out of capacity your health service needs to be able to provide care to everyone who needs it. So at the point where that is at risk of no longer happening, you have to have a lockdown, which is why we've had a lockdown every single time. That has been Boris Johnson's stated reason. And as you say, he warned yesterday, not really deliberately, but because he was speaking at the Liaison Committee in Parliament and they asked him about it, he did say that there's a very substantial risk of the NHS running out of ICU beds. But the sort of the quite uncomfortable point I made in morning call today was that we talk about this as though it's some sort of line in the sand, that there's a finite amount of health service capacity and there's a really scary risk that we are going to exceed that but that it's a sort of far off and very clear line in the sand in the future and that's sort of how everyone talks about it but really if you speak to doctors or nurses about it it's just more complicated than that and altogether sadder because 
that just depends on how you define the health service being overwhelmed. Like if you are talking in terms of a finite number of ICU beds, most hospitals or, or a great many, certainly in England, in every hospital of the people I was speaking to, they met that capacity weeks ago. But of course, then you convert other rooms in the hospital into ICU beds. You hook those up with more equipment. You sort of, you rearrange your hospital. Lots and lots of members of staff are off sick at the moment. So there's that pressure, but also the pressure of many, many more patients. And often they're working in areas that aren't their expertise anymore. So lots of non-ICU doctors and nurses working in ICU for the first time. All these things are happening. And so in a way, the health service has met the capacity. If you're thinking about the uh, the line in the sand, there's a case that a lot of hospitals have, have simply already crossed that line. But the people of the NHS keep finding extra capacity and they're stretching it thinner and thinner and thinner. So in a way, when Boris Johnson says, you know, there's a risk of running out of ICU beds. It's not exactly clear what he means. I mean, does he mean like this extreme worst case scenario where we start getting reports of people in hospitals who plainly would have been eligible for a place in ICU and who are just not given one? Does he mean like when the scale of the problem becomes really, really stark and apparent? Or what exactly does that mean? Because really as it is we're really already observing that and that's what that's what everyone who I was speaking to said that you know if you ask them if the NHS is is already overwhelmed they'd say well we are and we aren't you know we we were overwhelmed weeks ago but we keep going and the standard of care that we're offering is still broadly good because I think this is another interesting point I think they were sort of explaining that the way a hospital would work especially in ICU because most of the people I was speaking to are working in ICU now, it's sort of fine when everyone is stable or if one person is in need of really urgent care and very intensive attention from staff. But the way one doctor was sort of describing it is that, you know, 99% of the time it's safe and it's stable. But as soon as you get two people who are unwell simultaneously, which you can't really prepare for, there's like a risk that then care can't be given properly because there is just no slack in the system. But also because like we use the phrase ICU, so intensive care unit and ITU, intensive therapy unit interchangeably because that's basically the same thing. But the point that, that a lot of them were making is that you define intensive care by the care rather than the treatment. So care in terms of the ratio of staff to to patient and often you know ideally that's one-to-one or one member of staff for two members of intensive care but the as the health service is is stretched and stretched and stretched by the pandemic you're looking at at maybe a staff member overseeing maybe five patients in intensive care at which point one doctor was just making the case like that's definitionally not intensive care anymore that's not how you would define that kind of care so you're giving the same kind of intensive treatment and people are are doing their best but already in a way we're talking about ICU beds and places in ICU but in a way the nature of the care in ICU has changed slightly because 
of quite how badly the health service has been stretched and and you know even just the reports that everyone will will be familiar with of, of you know routine care being cancelled and so on I think in a way those are all symptoms of a health service that is already overwhelmed and stretched beyond its capacity I think there's just you know if if you take it as a baseline of you know a set number of beds or a set proportion of staff to patients in a lot of cases all we've already breached that line I just thought that that was the sad case worth making that actually what we're already seeing is a health service that is overwhelmed it's just that somehow doctors and nurses keep going and they're not saying sorry you know we're pulling up the drawbridge we're overwhelmed they just keep stretching their care ever more thinly and I think the point that they were trying to make is is that like they don't want to worry people about the standard of care that's being offered because they are still doing their very very best and sort of drawing on reserves they didn't think that they had but this is still like what a health service that is that is beyond its capacity looks like. Yeah, it's so interesting in all of this, I think, because there has been a perhaps understandable and maybe just fundamentally human squeamishness to speak about what it would actually look like if the NHS was sort of literally by definition overrun. I know what you've been saying, and I completely agree with you that it already is operating at beyond capacity. You know, if you're cancelling care for other things and if your doctors are getting to the point where they're suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder then yes you know you have gone beyond capacity but but the literal picture of what it would look like if if you couldn't take in covid and other patients has been something that you know we all want to skim over in our imaginations and so i think that's one of the reasons why it can be difficult to imagine that hospitals are overwhelmed and that we do need to put you know, strict restrictions in place to make sure that that they can treat people in a safe way like you've been describing. But I do think it is the duty of our politicians to have laid out what that scenario could have potentially looked like, which is, you know, literally turning ill and dying people away at the hospital doors. And even I, you know, when I'm making this point, I don't want to sort of lay out what that would literally look like. But I think that's one of the things that perhaps our politicians have, have failed to communicate. And as well as that, what's interesting is that Again, you know, this shows that the NHS runs a great deal on goodwill. I remember when the junior doctors were protesting against Jeremy Hunt's change to their contracts years ago. And then, you know, it was the same problem. Doctors and nurses are expected and, and, and other hospital staff are expected to go above and beyond constantly because they are so stretched. And because, as Michael from the data team and I laid out in our piece about how austerity is kind of dented the the government's pandemic resilience they just don't have as many resources and staff and things to draw on as 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 they used to and that's been degraded over the past 10 years particularly with the pressures that a sort of stretched social care service puts on the health service and so people are expected to go above and beyond and and sort of inject a great amount of goodwill into their into their jobs you know at a time of crisis of course that's what health the health service does it steps up and it, and it does what what its duty is is to do but in in other times you know that that trust and and that goodwill can really run ragged and i think this is just another very extreme example of of that happening i'd be interested to see you know once the pandemic has passed whether the attitude of our politicians does change towards that that situation i think you're exactly right that it's hard to imagine and define what 
turning people away from care would look like or 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 what that worst case scenario really would look like and the thing that I'm confused about or that I think that there's a gray area on is is the extent to which we are just already there because hearing from doctors and nurses you know in lots of individual hospitals they put out a mutual aid call every day so as individual hospitals don't have capacity for everyone that they need to treat in the way they need to treat them. And so there's already a situation where in some cases patients are being transported hundreds of miles away, or definitely there was one example of someone being transported 150 miles away and separated from another patient who also then died from COVID, like a husband and wife pair. One was sent to a hospital 150 miles away to get care and the other person was in ICU in the hospital near their home and died so you're already seeing on an individual hospital level hitting the finite ceiling of capacity and moving people around also there are such long ambulance queues in certainly in Northern Ireland it was really really bad around Christmas time and I suppose there's a question as to you know at what point are people waiting so long for care that that is just a symptom of a health service that is at capacity that isn't able to to treat people properly and then also I think this is the most I think this is the most sensitive one for doctors and nurses and, and people were kind of saying different things on this one but the thing that they were explaining was that the way intensive care works is that given the kind of intensive treatment involved in that there's always a, a situation when someone is is struggling in their ward or particular department with whatever they have there's the conversation about whether they should be put in intensive care or not so older people with a sort of a lower baseline of health or more comorbidities or if they're just older there's a conversation about whether they should go into intensive care or not because that's a a horrible way to die if your body won't be able to withstand it so there's always a kind of tricky call to be made about whether you should try putting someone in intensive care or not that's the reality all the time but then the problem is that there are now so many patients potentially eligible for intensive care literally like to quote a a doctor like whole wards full of people and so it isn't that there are definitely people who should be intensive care who aren't at the moment but they are making that call about whether it would be worth putting someone in intensive care or not much much more regularly and certainly some doctors are really worried that not everyone who could be having their life saved in intensive care is being given that care or there isn't space for those people but given the nature of intensive care that's a risk all the time because you're just making a really tricky call but given the nature of covid and quite how stretched the health services that's a much starker reality now this is a slightly weird thing to have had your mind changed about due to the pandemic but i do think one of the things that i feel i've really discovered about this whole process is i don't mean this in like making a speech as in it being like good telly right I wouldn't say any of the politicians who are around who I do think can make good speeches I would you know necessarily pay to watch or whatever but I do think we are seeing it actually is a real problem for a state when no one in the governing party can or or will right because I think Rishi Sunak can do the our objective is x 
as a result of X being our objective, we need to do Y. It's just ultimately his preferred objective and the government's objectives don't match at the present time. And so his approach is quite literally to to just resile himself from it. I mean, up to and including the fact that broadly the chief secretary of the treasury is the one who goes to most of the COVID meetings. Not most, I think most is probably putting it too strongly, but, you know, large numbers of meetings now having an emissary of his rather than him himself. And the fact that the prime minister can only do this kind of like sort of the sun will come up tomorrow, aren't we great, sort of like like that very one tonal thing, I think is a, a real problem because, I mean, I think it's part of why people don't, yeah, I have so many conversations with people where I can tell they're trying to do the right thing in terms of minimising their risk, but they haven't really understood what the risk is. And so much lockdown scepticism is based around, as Alva's written so many times so well, right? The fact that, like, ultimately, healthcare capacity is a hard constraint. You know, we could have more of it, but you ultimately do slam into it at some point. And, yeah, the kind of horror of what's happening, I think, is is in large part because... There is no one who can or wants to do, and the consequences of failure are X, and what this looks like is Y. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think, and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask, you ask us. us. So this question has been submitted uh, by Jo. Thanks for writing in, Jo. She's asking us about the free school meals. Most of the listeners will probably have seen the boxes of food that have been sent out to some children being circulated on Twitter. She asks an interesting question. Does someone need to start making an argument against all of these inverted commas, food poverty, fuel poverty, period poverty ideas and argue for giving people actual money? So, Stephen, you you wrote a piece, didn't you, about the difference between giving these types of food parcels to children or families and and just giving them vouchers for money that they can spend in supermarkets? In general, right, whether it's, you know, in London or the Sotho or Los Angeles, right, like every study of, of effective policy reduction basically concludes that just cash transfers to people without money unsurprisingly does fix the issue incredibly effectively and all of the kind of like people will just spend it on flat screen tellies or booze or just none of that stuff is true and the specific problem i think with food parcels as a policy intervention is then despite everything i've said it is of course true to say that households with intense vulnerability overlapping care needs chaotic lives etc etc won't be helped by just being given money I feel like the least helpful policy intervention you could possibly devise is to go, I, the government, I'm going to spend £15 on food parcels, which obviously, you know, means you end up like 
losing large chunks of the money of the £15, not on food, but on like the logistical hurdles of the parcels themselves, of uncooked food. Because those parcels are not helpful if you are a household with acute needs, for the most part, but they are significantly less food than just giving the average household in poverty 15 quid on unit child benefit or 15 quid on on UC which is more complex but if you know you've got a real allergy to people earning households even earning 50 grand a year getting an extra 15 quid then of course you could do it by UC and I guess this the thing I continually struggle with and I imagine this is even more acute for you Anoush is that I feel like I spend half of my time go, when I write about poverty going, yeah, writing specific granular issues about, you know, fuel poverty, food poverty, specific specific policy challenges. And the other time, basically declaring war on myself by going, but actually like, the central issue here is just poverty. I guess it, it kind of depends on whether or not you think Labour should be the one that has to make that argument i kind of think it's actually one of those things where although actually you know um johnny reynolds and kate green have both today said you look actually parcels are inevitably not a useful intervention in with this challenge just give people more cash there's always a question of to what extent the useful vehicle for making this type of, of narrow policy argument is a political party and to what extent it is other outlets hmm I have the same. I think Joe's question is really good because I always have the same criticism whenever I write about individual poverty issues. So, you know, holiday hunger is one every time I write about that, which was which has been a big story in the past year because of Marcus Rashford's campaign to get food for children over the school holidays. I always get people replying, you know, stop saying holiday hunger, just say hunger. You know, it's the same with fuel poverty. You know, fuel poverty is poverty if you can't afford to heat your house. Obviously, I agree intellectually with that argument. But as a journalist, and this is sort of what probably applies to the way other campaigners and maybe the Labour Party itself have to frame these kind of issues, is you have to signal to the reader or the listener to the topic that you're writing about. So you have to make it clear what you're what you're writing about. And sometimes you do have to use shorthands like that. And I think for a political party, if you're campaigning on a particular issue, and trying to gain traction for that campaign and and make it popular and make it part of your appeal, then you probably do have to use one of those pithier labels, even if they're they don't sort of describe the whole problem. So I do kind of I understand why they're problematic, but I do also think that they can be useful. You know, Marcus Rashford's campaign has been very successful for a number of reasons, but in particular, because it's just so obvious what he was asking the government to do. So if Labour politicians go out and talk about poverty in general, I imagine it captures people's imagination less than if they talk about a specific issue. That's why this food box scandal has been such a huge thing, you know, because it's very easy to to imagine the idea of, of children having to live on a solitary tomato for a week than having to think about structural poverty in a sort of macro sense. You know, I do think those labels can be useful sort of for communications purposes. But yes, I, you know, obviously I agree with the, the argument that just giving cash for parents to decide what will feed their child for that school week would be much more effective and it, and it would it would make the money go further. Because like you say, you introduce all sorts of other costs when you outsource feeding children to a catering company that then comes with its own costs and makes its own decisions that might not be best for the family, which seems to have been the case in some of these some of these food parcels. 
Having said that, I don't think using food parcels instead of vouchers angle of this story is the biggest thing, actually. I think it's the way that private contractors have been allowed to operate during this pandemic. I did a story about the shielding boxes, which you know were food boxes sent out to people who were being instructed to stay at home during the first lockdown because they were so clinically vulnerable. That kind of had to be food boxes rather than money because they couldn't go to the shops safely. And at that time, supermarket slots for delivery were, were, were all booked up. So it kind of you know, you understood why they had to rush out a scheme like that in the in the time period that they, they had to do it. But there's questions about how much money was actually spent on the food and how much profit the, the distributors who were contracted to do these deliveries were making. And that's sort of an open question and the government could be facing a legal challenge over that. And I think that caterers that are contracted by individual schools suddenly being told, OK, you're allowed to supply food parcels now instead of vouchers, I think that has also raised similar questions about, okay, you know, how much are they actually spending on this food? How are they interpreting what makes an appropriate food parcel for a week? And how much profit are they making? Because they are private firms and they are allowed to make profit from these kind of contracts. And it's interesting, I think, with Marcus Rashford's campaign, as you say, Anush, the success of it does kind of rest, I think, in part on the way he has targeted the sort of the easiest end of this problem in terms of what we were just talking about. So it being free school meals. So the like the initial idea that there's no cash transferring hands, that that, that is about giving a hot meal during the school day to children who need it. Uh, taking that fundamental principle and then extending it into the school holidays, but continuing the idea of providing children who basically everyone agrees are, are not to blame for their circumstances, children who are sort of uniquely blameless in our in our narrative around poverty, and you know with a kind of understanding that we don't extend to adults, but then also yeah no cash transferring hands, so it's food, so you have the combination of like no cash and it being children who are blameless and about how at that sort of particular point of the discussion around poverty everyone is on board as you say the challenge is to expand that argument and say well you know if you actually are committed to feeding children in poverty the more effective way of doing that is not you know essentially to to waste money on outsourcing the problem and getting you know like like you were saying Stephen for like because of all the ways you have to cut that cloth you're wasting money doing it and it's incredibly patronizing to not just give cash directly but there's still just there's just that policy leap even if you could establish that you're giving a particular amount of cash to children to address like children's hunger we don't have a helpful way of thinking about you know, we don't think of universal credit as a payment that addresses food poverty and fuel poverty and in many cases period poverty all in the one go. We think of it as like giving people money. And I think that there's a, a really sort of deep problem that people feel quite entitled to control money that they have given after they've handed it over. And you can see that in in sort of big and small ways. People kind of want to know where their money is going, even though 
there's a really strong case to make that once you've given your money away, it's not your money anymore. But it sort of applies in terms of like philanthropy and charity, but also the taxpayer's money, quote unquote. So there's this sort of idea that you can control or that you're entitled to exert control and influence over how money is spent, even when it's not really your money anymore. It just does present a really difficult policy challenge that the most effective way you address all of the individual things we were talking about is giving money directly but those the just like the massive communications challenge of doing that although I have to say as an aside I think that particularly in the case of period poverty it is worth talking about that as a specific issue just because if we are going to be in this climate where we try to address different basically symptoms of poverty or different aspects of poverty that is an aspect that we should be addressing right at the forefront so if we are in a situation where schools are providing free meals for for children in poverty definitely period products should be available in the bathrooms of those schools because it's the same problem and just given that that is such a new issue I think that co-opting that as another aspect of poverty that we name and identify and talk about is really worthwhile. To me at least the the, the difference with period poverty and the reason why is a useful separate point to make is one of the reasons why it arises as an issue is like male policymakers have basically gone that weird icky thing that's not a real health product we have a situation where we rightly hand out condoms for free at public health centres, but we don't do, well, we, we are now thankfully starting to do, to, but we, we haven't for years recognised the idea that sanitary towels and related period products are, of course, I was about to say equally, in many ways, more so vital health products. And I think that's that's one of the things where, like, that's something which is caused by an absence of money, but it also reflects a way that the state sees, which is to assume that it is dealing with people who are male. And so it's, that is a useful kind of way of, of thinking about that particular issue. I think the thing which I found interesting about this week, right, is that while some of the the food parcels that um, Jack Monroe has been tweeting and the one that has gone the most viral are clearly below even the government's guidance. The gap between the government's guidance for what should be in those boxes and what is in some of the bad ones is, I mean, <laughs> it's thin. It's its thin as two slices of cheese. Um, <laughs> you know, like, I actually think this has been the most ineffective week since Marcus Rashford burst out into the scene in terms of his campaign, right? You know, he's regularly, you know, tweeted as if, like, this is primarily, and I'm not saying and I necessarily think Charles is like beyond reproach, but ultimately the issues in these parcels are not primarily about individual providers failing, right? Because the, the gap between the bad, par- you know, the bad parcel and the government's guidelines is, you know, in some cases it's a tin of tinned meat, in some cases it's a slice of cheese, right? But, you know, we're not talking about a, a world-altering difference in terms of the quality of provision. W- what we're seeing again, which is the structural problem of outsourcing, which is not, you know, like, because sometimes, like, there are outsourcing companies which do things really brilliantly and, and have do have expertise Then I don't think it's likely that you would ever be able to have in staff on a permanent basis in the state. But the negative, and to me at least, this is why I think 
any benefits kind of become a bit of a wash. The negative is you have a situation where the prime minister can turn around and go, oh, yeah, I'll speak to the supplier. And Pretty Patel can go, oh, this is unacceptable. And it's just like, well, are we saying that it's unacceptable because of the missing slice of cheese? And I think that's where we have seen the kind of limits of, and obviously, you know, Rashford has, he's an incredibly interviewer. He, he articulates his case brilliantly. He's hired incredibly well. His tweets are great. The whole, the whole campaign around kind of like is completely consistent with everything he says and does personally. But I do think that we are seeing the, the hard limitations of like a, a narrow siloed campaign on poverty, which is you eventually do end up with a situation where Rashford A tweets out, oh yeah, the prime minister, I've spoken to the prime minister and he's going to like get to the bottom of it with this supplier. And B, in which the campaign then becomes a shield for the government to use against it. I guess the thing that I I found interesting about this really good question was in terms of what Labour should be campaigning for. I have kind of, it's a question I've been thinking about for a while, which is, are we Labour? I mean, the obvious answer is no, right? But in terms of like the perception that, than say the BBC has right to use a well, I'm using the word BBC very broadly. So let's you, let's talk very narrowly about say the program Politics Live, right, where they clearly and consistently use like left wing publications and indeed right wing publications as bolster to to balance the overall program, right. So if they have a situation where they have like someone from the SNP, someone from the Labour Party, then you're know, like, oh well, it's fine because you've got like someone from the Telegraph, someone from the Spectator. Or, you know, if you have like, you know, a Conservative MP, a, I was that's a Brexit Party MEP, but obviously we don't have those anymore. But, you know, like a Brexit Party MEP, someone from the SNP, and then you have, um, you know, someone from the New Statesman on as the centre-left representation. Now, I don't think, and indeed, one of the common complaints I will hear from journalists across the political spectrum isn't what they don't like, is when they feel like, that they're like, well, I, I didn't want to like speak in favour of the government or the main opposition party, but I'm aware that because I didn't, no one made like the left wing case for being in the union, or no one like put the government side, or yada yada yada. The assumption I I always used to have was that I was right to think that that was problematic, and the BBC was wrong to perceive like a left wing journalist or a left wing campaigner or you know as interchangeable with a, a Labour MP. The question is, is basically, when we talk about poverty on television, are we, in the minds of a casual audience, shaping people's perceptions of what the Labour Party thinks, right? Like, you know, with all of these, like, focus groups where someone goes, people think the Labour Party thought X, you know, that has nothing to do with their policy position. But it does have something to do with the things that, like, various media outriders of, of, of Labour leadership's past and present have said. And I guess the question I sort of have is when we have this kind of discussion, the assumption, at least I've always had in the past, is like, well, there's this thing called the Labour Party, there's this thing called NGOs, charities, and this thing called the media. And if we're saying, well, look, actually, the issue is is overall poverty, and an NGO is saying, here are specific issues about our campaign issue, and then you have like someone from one of the four progressive parties, five, sorry, saying, well, here's our actual position, which will be somewhere between all of those various stakeholders, to what extent does the political party, right, the the one thing which actually can change its response, right, like, yeah, like, realistically, like, I am just not going to start going on television and going, actually, yeah, you've got to give people vouchers because, you know, they can't be trusted value for money, right? I'm just not going to do it. Ditto, like, the Trussell Trust is not going to start doing it. And so, in a way, I think the question I'm greeting ourselves is, what does it mean for the Labour Party? And I've been 
thinking about this, and yeah, partly because of, of a very interesting interview with with David Shaw, a US political strategist, about this. Where obviously it's, it's you'd expect this a bit more because it's a two party system. Which is to what extent are questions that we often think of, yeah, like this one, explicitly phrased as in someone in Labour. We kind of think, oh, there's Labour and there's the left, there's the Tories and there's the right. But in the minds of swing voters, to what extent is there actually just like this thing called the left and this thing called the right? Therefore, if if a large group of people are going to, I think, rightly go, well, look, we need to start talking about cash transfers. Does that basically mean that the Labour Party should do it anyway, because they're either going to be tagged with it or they're going to not be? But, you know, they are they aren't the architects of it. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. You can find me on Twitter at Anoush underscore C. You can find me on Twitter at pronounced Alva, A-L-V-A. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Stephen KB. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and make sure you subscribe. Subscribe.